Welcome to another episode of We Will Remember Freedom, a monthly podcast of anarchist fiction. I'm your host, Margaret Kiljoy. This month, we're bringing you the story The Great Armored Train by Nick Mamatas. I think the probably the first time I heard about Nick Mamatas was when I heard that he was going to give a talk at the Bastard Conference in the Bay. And that kind of thing tends to grab my attention when someone who's from the science fiction world is speaking at an anarchist conference. Since then, I've been following him on social media and following and enjoying his work. And I knew he was someone I wanted to have on the show. This particular story, The Great Armored Train, it stood out to me because, well, I guess I I appreciate a good critique of state communism. In particular, what I enjoy about this story is that it it presents the limits of the sort of quote-unquote scientific and materialist socialism offered by state communism. And I also like this story because it's just a, a simple and beautiful story, and it's well told. Uh, Nick is a... It shows that Nick has been practicing his craft for a very long time. This podcast is a proud member of the Channel Zero network of anarchist podcasts. Here's a bumper from another show on the network. Where did you get this? Your friendly neighborhood anarchist. More of an anarchist militant. People involved in social struggles than everybody else. People have been waiting for some content. Radio. Show. The Final Straw and I'm William Gettinger. And I'm Percy Goodness. The Final Straw Radio. Noblogs. If you're listening, you are the resistance. I pay the authors and narrators who appear on this show out of pocket. So if you'd like to help this show continue, please consider supporting me on Patreon under my name, Margaret Kiljoy. The Great Armored Train by Nick Mamatas. Narrated by Ben Church. This story first appeared in Dark Discoveries in 2016. So this is what communism means, Grebov thought. The train was magnificent. It seemed too heavy to move, but it fairly glided along the tracks. It was the smoothest ride Grubuf had ever been on, and it bustled with activity. Warehouse, restaurant, barracks, even a Politburo office and a telegraph station, a two-car garage, and even a small biplane among its twelve wagons. Never mind the armored engines with gun turrets. All this, and it doesn't even have a name. It was just the train of the Pridrivion Soviet, Leon Trotsky. Didn't the war commissar have a wife or a girlfriend to name his personal armored war train after? But really, it was the workers' train, and there was much work to be done. Gribov was a soldier, but no longer just a standard peasant with a rifle and a children's book on the Russian alphabet to help him learn to read. He was one of the Red Satnia, the hundred soldiers who made up Trotsky's bodyguard and rushed out to join pitched battles. Not long before, he'd been in the cavalry train that followed behind Trotsky's shoveling horse shit. But the train and the Bolshevik efforts had taken some hits lately, and now Gribov was decked out in black leather, presumably ready to give his life for the world proletariat and for comrade Trotsky. Gribov dutifully collected the train's newspaper, the Puti, but mostly used it to insulate his boots. It was cold tonight on the Polish border, and he was glad Trotsky wrote so much. Almost toasty, he thought, as he leapt from the roof of one car to another, watching the forest for Mensheviks, for Cossacks, for Poles. Comrade, one of the sharpshooters stationed on the roof whispered harshly, step lightly, you'll bring them down upon us. Comrade, Gribu said, we are on a giant train. Steam is billowing from the engines, even idle, even under the new moon. We're obvious. And an opposing army flooding from the woods should be more obvious still, another sharpshooter said. When I was a soldier under the Tsar, we would never have dared to banter so, said the first shooter. Thus I am thankful now more than ever for the revolution and the second Latvian Rifleman Soviet Regiment, said the second. The others, five in all, giggled. But be quiet anyway, the second shooter said to Gribov. I'm working on my poem. More chortling emerged from the dark. Poem? What? Gribov asked. Don't you read the paper? The first shooter asked. How do you know where we are on our way to? More laughter. This time for the Pananfputi. En route, or on our way. Comrade Fancy Dude has called on the poets of Poland to write poems denouncing the landlords and the bourgeoisie, a new voice explained. Perhaps I will write a poem then, Gribov said. 
He laughed once. What rhymes with pshek? The second shooter asked, and he got a round of chuckles from the shooters arranged on either side of the train car's roof. The new communist mentality had not quite taken hold in the men of the Red Satnia. After all, the Polish workers spoke as funnily as the Polish bourgeoisie, but Gripov couldn't blame them for their elitism. They were an elite. It was a very nice train, after all, complete with cloth napkins for Trotsky's personal staff. So perhaps being part of the 100, living aboard a futuristic conveyance, had confused them. Gribov could too write a poem, and a poem that would be understood by the Polish proletariat. Working man to working man, something these careerists from good families would never understand. The poem could be about the train and its many magnificent attributes. The Rolls-Royce liberated from the Tsar's garage and outfitted with a pair of machine guns. It was always a thrill to hear it roaring forth from its special train car, metal flashing under the sun, lightning and thunder at once. Carry on, he announced to the sharpshooters, and moved on to the next train car, jumping lightly and expertly over the gap. It was a risk, but Gribov knew there would be no insults shouted at his back, for fear of alerting the enemy. There was no way the train was secret, but a sudden yelp could give away a comrade's position to a Polish sniper. A poem. A poem. What would inspire the Polish working class to rise up to greet the Red Army as liberators? No poem had been needed to persuade Gribov. His family were dirt-poor peasants, and when he crawled into Petrograd to look for work on the piers, he was treated worse than his father had treated the animals on the farm. Nobody else had offered anything but misery and the phony promise of a heavenly reward. The heavens were dark tonight. No moon, no stars. The clouds were low and the color of slate. A rush of wind almost sent Gribov's spine tearing out of his back. Bursting from the trees had come a great gray owl, flying low and nearly silent just under the dome of the sky, wings stretched a meter and a half from tip to tip. Incredible. This would go into the poem, Gribov decided. But then the owl banked and turned, its claws wide and gleaming. Gribov couldn't decide between drawing his pistol and just raising his arms. The owl took his face. Screaming, Gribov flailed and fell from the train. An alarm was raised, but from the woods, Polish irregulars rained small arms fire down on the train. Who would wake Trotsky? The man would sleep through the proletarian revolution were he not in charge of scheduling it, was the common joke. But it wasn't quite fair. Trotsky was awake twenty hours a day, so the four he slept were extremely necessary. He was difficult to awaken and ornery when he finally arose. Even under communism, whoever knocked on the door had better have his boots polished. Nitayev drew the short straw and was poised to knock when the door opened. Trotsky was already dressed, complete in leather coat and hat. We are not underway, I presume, Trotsky said, because the tracks ahead have been destroyed, and we are concerned that if we head back along the line we'll encounter a Menshevik train. The cavalry train is also pinned down. A near-perfect set of wrong conclusions. Under any other circumstances, Trotsky would have been correct, but... We have an infiltrator. She has sabotaged the engines. We were able to repulse the Poles, but we expect reinforcements by morning, Nichayev said. She? Trotsky began. So we've heard, Nichayev said. She's not been captured yet? A woman? An individual woman. It's hard to explain, Nichayev began. A few words later, and Trotsky pushed past him, his own sidearm drawn, orders spilling forth. The woman looked like a pole, fair with a round face, though there was something else about her coloration too, the bone structure around her cheeks. She wore the black leather uniform of a red Satnia fighter, though it was far too big for her. She'd made it as far as one of the supply cars. The men she had already dispatched slumped amidst piles of shoes, loose piles of tobacco and potatoes, spilling forth from the sacks they'd been stored in. Four guards had rifles trained on her. For a moment, Trotsky thought she was weeping silently, but then realized that the squint was just her eyes. She was a totter, or had some totter ancestry anyway. Anyone have any Polish? Trotsky asked. Then he tried in Russian, then German, and even bad French and English. Comrade Commissar, one of the guards asked. What shall we do? Shoot her? If we approach, she just... He trailed off. Turns into an owl, Trotsky finished. Keep her pinned, rotate comrades in and out of here. Let her stand there looking foolish. Kick a bucket over to her so she can urinate without making a mess. 
If she does anything else... interesting, seal her in the car and detach it from the train on both ends. We'll rendezvous the hard way. After hasty scrambles around tracks and over coaches to the restaurant car, everyone was full of questions, but only Trotsky was actually able to complete his sentences without interruption. You'd sacrifice the train, but seal her in and set it on fire. That way, how many more? Why are you even taking this seriously? Pazansky finally demanded of Trotsky. He was the senior of the commissar's secretaries, and broad-chested, so his voice, both metaphorical and literal, carried like no other. It defies all we know of science. That is why, Trotsky said. The room quieted. Why am I on the verge of sacrificing our train? Because if a woman can metamorphose into an owl, our cause is lost. The proletarian dictatorship depends on proletarian revolution. The proletarian revolution depends on a dialectical understanding of history. The dialectical understanding of history... The soldiers began shifting in their seats, as it sounded like Comrade Fancy Pants was gearing up for one of his extensive speeches. And the dialectical understanding of history is built upon a bedrock of materialism. Trotsky tugged on his Van Dyke. We're at war, so I'll say it quickly. If she is some sort of mystical or supernatural being, our cause is lost. If magic is real, then Marxism is not. We may as well go home and light candles by the family icon. What are the chances that this woman can turn into an owl in a way not possible to explain by some science, even if only the science of the future, Pazansky asked. And what are the chances that vodka and philosophical backsliding led to a certain level of embarrassment among our troop over the fact that a single female saboteur eluded detection, damaged both engines, and killed several men with what was obviously a garden fork of some sort? Lo. Trotsky said. Lower than the possibility that magic and superstition is real? That a fairy out of children's tales attacked our train for the glory of Polish imperialists? That depends on the nature of reality, Trotsky said, which we will now investigate. Men, take the motor cars out. Find me a Pole who speaks Russian. Find me a Tatar familiar with the superstitions of his race. Find a book, a journal, anything, even if for children, on the subject of local folklore or avifauna. And try to make sure the Pole who can speak Russian is literate. Shoes and food and cigarettes and liquor to trade, and if the marketplace doesn't meet our demands. Well then, men, remember that you are communists. When the troop dispersed, Trotsky raised an eyebrow at Pazansky. The senior secretary smirked back, and young Nechayev just looked confused. We have cleared the train of anyone who might have been bamboozled by this stage magic, Pazansky explained. Obviously, she is wearing one of our uniforms. If she turned into an owl and then back, she would be nude, Trotsky said. What I am interested in, primarily, is finding out how our captive performs these tricks. It might make for a useful wedge between Polish workers and reactionary, credulous peasants. Nichayev said, I thought we were never to lie to the working class. Trotsky shrugged. We wouldn't be. We'd be lying to the backwards elements of the peasantry. The Poles are lying to our people, of course, which is why this social reactionary split has occurred. Nichayev had the strong feeling that the only split that had occurred was that Trotsky was getting ready to have him demoted, arrested, or thrown off the train for passing on the owl story with such credulity. And we need to find out from whom she got one of our uniforms. We've not been through this part of the front before. We've had no recent casualties outside of the train from which the leathers could have been salvaged. If the Poles had decided to infiltrate, surely they would have sent a mail and a Russian speaker. I suspect some sort of love affair concocted by local peasant militias, Trotsky said. You two, move my desk over to the train in which our owl has been penned. A handful of comrades discovered Gribuf on their way back from their mission. He was cold, bloodied, probably blinded, and one eye was missing entirely. But he lived. Much of his uniform was missing as well. They created a makeshift gurney from rifles and coats and brought him aboard to the infirmary car. Gribuf was not a weak man, and he had fallen into a snowbank, so soon enough he was able to testify haltingly. Pazansky took notes, argued closely over the advice of the medics. The owl. Not a small kite or even an aeroplane of some sort. It was warm. Alive. Smelled like the woods and dead prey. Feathers would do that. She took off my clothes. Just one little girl. One? How do you know there was only one if you are missing one eye? Just a pair of little hands. Did they say anything? Gribuf laughed. Pshik, pshik. You know how poles sound all... 
Consonants. <laughs> Comrade, there are many revolutionary Poles in our movement who might tell you that to a Pole, a Russian sounds like a child, Pozonsky lectured. Sha-sha, va-va. Comrade Secretary, please, one of the medics said. He needs rest, not political education. We need to get to the bottom of the case of this infiltrator, Comrade Doctor. Why not just shoot her and throw her in a ditch, the medic demanded. Please don't, Grebuff said. She's... Yes? My poem... He's delirious, said the medic. Thank you for that insight, Comrade Doctor, Pozonsky said. As we thought. Nechayev told Trotsky about finding Grebuff, but that made the commissar only more interested in this interrogative theater. Soldiers had slowly moved into the train car, but kept their rifles and further the length of two strides between themselves and the girl. She looked like a wax doll of some sort. If not for the puffs of steam coming from her mouth with every exhalation, she could have passed for a bit of whimsical propaganda art amongst the supplies. The soldiers had found several books on folklore and a local bilingual speaker, an older woman who had experienced the border shifting between empires under her feet several times in her long life. She was not pleased to have been awakened at gunpoint and brought here for the interrogation, but she drank her tea and ate a potato and a bit of meat from the tin plate held on her lap with some pleasure. She could even read, but her glasses had been smashed during the trip back to the train, so her literacy was of no help. Do you two women know one another? was the first question. I don't associate with Tatars, the old woman said, or communists. And yet here we all are, said Trotsky. Nechayev put his hand to his forehead and sighed. Under the Tsar, he probably would have been whipped for the gesture, but Trotsky didn't even notice. Ask her why she is against the proletarian revolution, he said to the older woman. With a practiced sneer, she turned toward the girl and repeated the question in Polish. The answer was short. She says you know why. The interrogation went on for some time. Was she a Tatar? That depends on what you mean. Did she attack the soldier, Grybov, sabotage the engine, then storm through the cars of this magnificent train, killing and injuring Soviet soldiers? Certainly she did, and she would be pleased to continue. How did she manage such a feat? The soldier had his head in the clouds. Her husband, murdered by Reds, had been a machinist, so she knew something of engines. Russian men are weak and easy to kill, even for a simple girl like her. Could she turn into an owl? Yes, of course. That was the fault of the Bolsheviks as well. How is that? Trotsky said, clearly amused. Girls who are married when they die turn into owls. It was explained by the translator before the young girl even spoke. The older woman added, It is an old story. Trotsky took a moment to flip through one of the children's books his soldiers had liberated and grunted once when he alighted upon a certain illustrated page. Are there mice in your home? The old woman turned again to ask the girl, but Trotsky raised his hand. In your home, ma'am. There were mice in my home, she snapped. When there was food in my home, another achievement for the Bolsheviks. Then how likely is it that Polish girls transform into owls upon their death? Trotsky asked, ignoring the last bit of editorializing. The moon would be eclipsed every night by masses of owl wings, and there wouldn't be a mouse left in Poland. The girl said something testy-sounding, and the old woman translated at length, even pantomiming a mouse nibbling at some food. Trotsky turned to Nechayev. Summon more witnesses, he said. If they are not wounded or tending the wounded, if they are not on watch, if they are not repairing the engine, have them gather on either side of the car and peer inside. Nechayev ran to comply. Finally, the girl said something, and the old woman translated it. Her explanation is that she is only a Pole on her mother's side of the family. Her father's side are totters. There was a bit more discussion, then the old woman turned to Trotsky with a smile on her face. She says her grandfather's grandfather was a primitive. A shaman, Trotsky said. Behind him, a crowd was forming, four or five rows deep. With military discipline, the shortest gathered immediately behind Trotsky's desk and took to their knees not to block the vision of their comrades behind them. I presume it was the hybridity of superstitions that allows you your special ability to transform into an owl. The old woman didn't bother to translate that. Lanterns shifted and danced on either side of the train car, as comrades who couldn't fit on either end of the train car tried to squeeze in. Trotsky was clearly pontificating at length in order to allow everyone to get into position. So why attack us? Why not be free as the proverbial bird, always, without the burdens of consciousness or the need to labor? Why not join us, allow us to better understand your abilities so that we might integrate it into the corpus of materialist science? 
what diseases could be cured via this form of cellular transformation, and yet you keep it to yourself. The old woman's translations were obviously abbreviated and simplified, Nchayev could tell, but the young girl seemed to be getting the gist of Trotsky's comments anyway. Or perhaps you cannot turn into an owl, Trotsky finally concluded. Just acknowledge this, and we'll keep you a prisoner here until our engine is repaired. We'll leave you at the next station on our side of the front for typical justice. If you continue to insist on your nonsense story, we shall gun you down here. Summary revolutionary justice on the part of the international working class against a deranged member of the criminal element. Or you may turn into an owl and flee, Trotsky said. He glanced at Nechayev, then nodded toward the closest window. It occurred to Nechayev that the window, even were he to smash it out of its frame with the butt of a borrowed rifle, would not be sufficient for the wingspan of an owl the size of the one Gribov supposedly encountered. But he obeyed anyway as the older woman translated. Then, harshly, the older woman added something else, a message directly aimed at the girl. The girl shifted in her outfit. A shoulder, nude, almost pink despite the cold, was visible now, and her thin little collarbone itself like a bird's wings. Then two things happened. The girl made a move. It wasn't a run or a leap, but as though she had thrown her body forward, every muscle working together. One of the soldiers fired. The train car filled with sound and smoke. Men screamed, No! Don't! For a moment, Nechayev thought something would happen. She wouldn't fall. Feathers would erupt out her back, trailing the bullet. There was still shouting. The comrades were worried, hysterical, for themselves. Why fire into a crowded train car? Madness! The girl fell hard to the floor. A gardening tool slipped from one sleeve of her oversized leather coat and clattered to the floor. The other soldiers who had their rifles trained on the woman held their fire. The old lady wasn't crying as Necheyev thought she might be. She was terrified that she would be next, her face chiseled by horror into an unnerving rictus. Trotsky looked contemplative. Maybe it was a flash of disappointment that crossed over his eyes as he spoke. Retrieve the coat and have it stitched up if possible, he said to nobody in particular, and there were no volunteers to strip the girl. He turned to the shooter. Comrade Fiedin, you are relieved of duty due to reckless fire. Put your rifle down now if you do not wish it removed from you by force. He sighed deeply. Have the body brought to the infirmary car. We're not equipped for an autopsy here, but it might be interesting to see if there are visible lesions on her brain. So much for magical owls, eh? Trotsky readied himself against his desk and rose. With a gesture, he told Nechayev to clear it all away. And if I see one comrade making the sign of the cross or hear tell of it, he will be disciplined most severely. And someone pay this woman and return her to her home, he said, indicating the old lady, who still hadn't moved, hadn't blinked. Clearly, the corpse should have been stored in the refrigerated car, but Pazansky wouldn't have it and he threatened the medics who said they'd go to Trotsky about it with hard discipline and a negative write-up in the trained newspaper. "'It's cold enough on this train,' Pazansky said. "'Her lesions will keep for the night, I'm sure.' There were a few choice items in cold storage that Pazansky liked to keep for himself, and whenever an unauthorized comrade entered the refrigerated car, they would, in a burst of revolutionary fervor, take a sample of the caviar or beefsteak or decent vodka to share with the masses.' that is, their friends. And so she ended up in sickbay, next to Gribov. He suffered, awake from his wounds, so was conscious to hear her cough out the bullet that had entered her chest. Mostly blind, he couldn't see that the bullet was coated in plant matter, feathers, and tiny bones. She slid off the examination table she had been left on, wrapped the blanket she had been given out of a sense of retrograde modesty around herself, and nudged Gribov. I have your eye she said to him. Would you like it back? She was not speaking in the pshek pshek of Polish. It was a strange tongue, all elongated oo sounds. I... That would be hard to explain to the comrade officers, Gribov said. You may come with me, the girl said. Indeed, I insist upon it. I cannot fly like you. She smiled. Can you drive? He smiled too. Not quite like a mother giving a child a kiss. She leaned down, swept her hair away from her face, and with a significant gulp, regurgitated Gribov's eye onto his face, then roughly pushed it back into the socket with her free hand. 
Ten bloody minutes later, they had made it to the Tsar's Rolls-Royce and the garage car, and were on their way, roaring, serpentine, into the night, machine guns blazing as Gribov twisted the wheel to dodge fire from the train-top sharpshooters. Fire that soon tilted up into the slate-dark sky as a thousand great gray owls descended in swarms onto the train. So I'm here with Nick Mamatas, who is what you all just heard, his story, The Great Armored Train. Uh, So welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Um, So you were one of the first people that I knew I was going to try and have on this show, uh, even though I didn't even know which story I was going to pick by you at first, just because you're one of the first people who came on my radar in the past couple years uh, as as an anarchist fiction writer and as someone who writes fiction actually sort of within who's coming from a, a fiction writing background and yeah so i I've, i guess the first thing i want to talk to you one of the reasons i picked this story um i'm particularly excited about picking stories that uh, critique state communism um mm-hmm. and i'm particularly excited about picking a story in which state communism runs up against folk magic and so i'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about the story behind this story how you came to write it well, you know, this is going to be a very tedious uh, story because the, the reality is uh, I am a very unimaginative writer and I depend mostly on commissions and solicitations. And so there was this magazine called Dark Discoveries. which had been around for a while. It had started off as sort of a ersat cemetery dance focusing on uh, limited editions of horror fiction back in the 90s and 2000s. Nobody read horror except for 500 people. Well, those 500 people could get, you know, $40, would buy $40, $50, $75 books. And Dark Discoveries was doing that for a while. Then it got taken over uh, by someone who uh, just made it a weird kind of uh, vanity zine. And then it was bought uh, by a third set of people who decided to try to uh, professionalize. And they focused on themes. They would have like horror mystery or the Weird West or, or that kind of thing. And... They decided to have the horror of war as a uh, as a theme, and they asked me to uh, participate to write them a story. And I said, "Well, why me? I don't really care about the military. I have no military background. I don't find it fascinating." And they said, "Well, that is why. That that was why." <laughs> and I've always been interested in, in uh, Trotsky's train. And I'll tell you that I am not a state communist now, but I, I have in the past been a state communist. And so I uh, I probably have a little bit more sympathy. For the Russian Revolution, then a lot of anarchists, um, at least as far as the Bolsheviks, uh, parts early on in it. And I thought the train was always just very fascinating. All the things in the story about it had two uh, two garages, and it had a cinema, and it had its own newspaper, internal and an external one. Wow. Uh, and all this really true. And um, <clears throat> there's a certain audacity to it. And it's very, something very science fictional, too, is like the bleeding edge of technology at the time as far as what they could get their hands on and, and jam into this train and uh you know it worked i mean it worked in so far as that uh this is not a statement in support of the bolsheviks uh but the reality is at least partial part of the reality is that uh during the russian revolution and civil war 17 other countries invaded russia mm-hmm. and of course the blacks were against them the whites were against them and uh they beat them all Right, even the U.S. was involved. They had put up some troops in uh, in Siberia, and so there was something interesting about that. And of course, there are many terrible things that happened, including uh, the incursion to Poland. That's that is the theme, that is the setting of the story. And so I just found it fascinating. Yeah, and and just the idea of folk magic is something that is uh, persistent. You know, no matter how materialist or how Marxist or how left a, a society is, there's always going to be folk magic remnants. And so I was always interested in that too. And I'm, I'm, I'm coming from a place where my father's an immigrant from Greece, like the, the, the armpit of Greece, the, the rural, rural dopey area, which also is, happens to be a very communist area because um, uh, a lot of people were exiled there during the Greek Civil War. So I grew up with this kind of weird mix of, oh, of course, your Uncle Demo is a communist. And of course he goes to church every Sunday. And of course he actually, so, um, that's a sort of a magic trick with olive oil to tell the future. So all these things are always true. 
So I kind of like that, uh, seeing that in both conflict and both, uh, in conflict and convergent. Okay. Well, yeah. that, that actually works really well because there's a, I mean, one of the themes of the story is that the, the communist leaves, you know, like leaves the train. Yeah. Um, how did you, uh, how did you come to, how did you come to leave state communism? Oh, uh, meeting, meeting state communists. I guess the, it's the, it's the classic story, I suppose. Um, um, <clears throat> you know, back in the fifties and sixties, everyone on the left at one point would join the socialist workers party. Uh, in the nineties and early two thousands, everybody at one point joined the international socialist organization. Mm-hmm. So I was in the ISO and, uh, it was just fascinating to me that in the ISO, you know, there was a, despite all the talk of class politics and despite some good work they did and some theoretical things that were actually pretty interesting, the reality is that all the branch organizers, all the national organizers were these trust fund people with, you know, advanced degrees from Brown University or Northwestern. And uh, <clears throat> they were all trading. Uh, they were all sexual partners, too. Where we don't have these uh, interpersonal things. So they just sort of, <clears throat> despite claiming to be this vanguard party and despite being trying to focus on the working class. It was basically a bunch of uh, people who were really imperious and who were, you know, easily, easily replicating what they learned from their parents as far as how to manage people and uh, how to be success. <clears throat> and so it was, it was, it was a capitalist society inside this putatively socialist organization. And uh, I'll never forget the time uh, we were trying to raise some money so that poor comrades can go to this big meeting in Illinois, and they had the idea to have a stoop sale. And so I donated. The CD player didn't use very much. And I was one of these poor comrades. I was going to pick a, you know, a car with like 10 people or something. Mm-hmm. And uh, later on, I didn't go to the stoop sale, but I, I brought in the CD player. And later on, somebody who uh, you know, was very wealthy said, oh, that CD player is great. I bought it for 10 bucks. <laughs> and I could have used that 10 bucks, or I could have, you know, put it out on the street and got 15 bucks for it. And that, that kind of thing was very, very typical of uh, ISO activities. Yeah. Yeah. And then furthermore, I mean, just history. Um, if, you, if you can point to Russian Revolution and say, oh, there, here's how the vanguard worked. Well, that's one in the numerator column. And the denominator column with all the, it never works. It, it degenerates. Even if you want to say, oh, well, Stalin was something else. It just doesn't, the idea of the state withering away basically by itself, uh, when, when contradictions decrease to a certain extent, just doesn't seem to have worked out in practice. Yeah, I always run into this put, idea. Put that, mild, right? yeah. This idea that, you know, um, Marxism is very scientific, yet yeah. the 20th century to me looks like a repeated, a, a, a repeated experiment of the hypothesis that the state will just wither away, and the experiment keeps coming back that it will not. Exactly, yeah. How did you end up moving from there to anarchism? Well, I wasn't going to become a liberal. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's basically it. Yeah, that makes sense. I'm a state communist. Okay, get rid of the state part. Oh, I'm, a, I'm an anarchist. Yeah. Uh, okay, so one of my favorite things about following you on social media, and everyone who's listening to this should follow uh, Nick on social media, please, please don't. Okay, don't. <laughs> is that um, you're very blunt about uh, promoting your work. And you're very blunt also about, you're also very transparent about the money that you make and the the money you don't make as a writer. (laughs) And this is something that's very dear to my heart because I think we're seeing this shift in the way that anarchists and activists think about money. And like it used to be that it would be like bad to get paid for your work. And instead, I think now for the past at least five years, we've been much more in this uh, paradigm that... Uh, writing is blue collar work and we should be paid for it. And I think that you're one of the, the better proponents of writing as blue collar work. I don't know if I've heard you phrase it that way particularly, but if you could, I'd, I'd, I'd love to hear kind of your thoughts on why you're transparent about money and why you're uh, transparent about trying to get money for your writing. All right. Well, uh, I guess I wouldn't say that it's blue collar work, um, mm-hmm. but um, it's no collar work, right? It's not even white collar work. And it is, and it does have elements of being like a small business as well. Um, but the reality, uh, I keep saying the reality is, and I should, I should eliminate that habit. I guess I'm interested in talking about money, uh, because I come from a particular milieu, which is I grew up in New York and, uh, 
I entered publishing via sort of independent publishing community, uh, which brushed up against big commercial publishing. And so I was a recipient of a lot of information. I was, uh, you know, I would spend one day working on some small book, some small collection of poetry that we can sell on the Lower East Side and maybe make a thousand dollars and then in the evening go to some event or some party where somebody would, would talk about their half a million dollar advance. That's mm -hmm. the same industry. And so one was just one step away uh, from these phenomenal riches at any given time. And also one step away from stapling it together a zine and hoping that St. Mark's Bookshop wouldn't just throw it out mm -hmm. when they said they'd take it. <clears throat> and so it's, you know, contradictions abound. And I was always highly interested in money uh, because, I mean, it's, all, it's quite similar to this question about uh, the ISO and the Vanguard. Who, who can say that I don't care about money when I'm performing this labor, doing this work, selling these items? Well, it's people who already have money. Yeah. If you go to an event like the Associated Writing Programs, which is an event for essentially a trade show and an academic conference for MFA programs and people who teach creative writing at the university level, they are just confused about this idea of money. Oh, it would be nice to get money, but how, how could this possibly happen? Who ever heard of getting money for writing? But then if you look at the guests, the special guests, the keynote speakers, the people they put on their advertisements to lure uh, in the public, it's all these very wealthy, very well-known writers who are making, you know, dollars $100,000, $200,000, $300,000 per book, who have these, you know, very nice jobs at uh, leading universities, who have film deals. You know, Joyce Carol Oates isn't thinking, well, how could I possibly get money for, the, for this story? <laughs> Should I send it to your or just to, to the literary magazine the kids run at, at my school? There, there's no question there. Mm -hmm. But you can have a question of it when you don't need the money. So a lot of people, you know, that you one encounters uh, <clears throat> in writing just are utterly confused. And if you go to AWP, you, they have a dealer's room, sort of a, uh, a book show, which mostly uh, is university-backed literary journals that you have never heard of, that you can't find, that you really have, would have difficulty buying if you wanted a copy of it. No, they're not even on Amazon.com or anything like that. You have to sort of go to their website or send in a check. And there are hundreds and hundreds of them. And they all say the same thing, like, well, we're just trying to give writers a voice. I'm like, well, a voice for whom? And all they have to do is pay us 12 bucks, you know, and we'll put them in, or you pay us a dollar, and we'll read their story faster, like in six months, not 12 months. And what this is crying out for is the end of these subsidies, which are subsidizing nothing. And if there were 40 good literary journals that would pay writers and have an audience of 10,000, 20,000 people, um, literary short fiction would be much in a much better place. But right now we just have The New Yorker, Paris Review, Zoe Trope, and then a thousand tiny zines that are impossible to read, meaning you literally cannot find the scene. Yeah. And, the, and this boils down to a question of money. Why, why would I pay you to publish a story when you'd give it to me and give me a dollar to even the, for, the, for the pleasure of reading it? I wouldn't. And why would you want to buy, sell your story when you already have a university job that might be full-time or you might have a, a spouse or you may just come from wealth? It's a, you know, a preoccupation. Uh, like, a, like an avocation, like a hobby. Yeah. That people and so in this, you have the, you know, basically very wealthy, very well-off, important writers, one step away from people who are just giving their stuff away for no reason. They have no idea how money works. I thought it was important to sort of demystify things, at least not that I could. So I talk about money a lot. I uh, keep track of passive income. And I don't make a lot of money. It's not bragging in that because no, one's, no one would brag about my income level. <laughs> I got a I got a royalty check two days ago, and I thought of you. I got my my royalty check from AK Press, and uh, it was eight eight dollars and sixty seven cents or something like that. Nice. And uh, <laughs> well, Margaret, you do live in the woods; it, it'll go a long way. <laughs> That's true. I had just <laughs> spent more money on lunch than I had just gotten <laughs> with my royalty check. Are you vegan? You're vegan, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, that's a lot of beans, though, isn't it? That's true. <laughs> Well, okay, so this also gets into something that I wanted to ask about um, literary fiction versus genre fiction, because sure. uh, which in the notes of your book, um, The People's Republic of Everything, which is a collection of short stories that this book, this story appeared in, you talk a lot about um, literary versus 
genre fiction. And I, I thought of this also because I think this ties into the money question. Uh, my book that later became The Lamb Will Slaughter the Lion, originally I wrote it as literary fiction. I originally wrote it with no demons or anything like that. It was just about a squatted town. And yeah. at one point I realized there was no way I'd ever sell it. And I was like, <laughs> correct. So I, so I added a demon deer and I actually, that's a bad example because I, I like the, the, the new story is better than the old story. No back in a way, Margaret, keep it up. <laughs> but well, I finish, finish the anecdote. This is the best part of the story. Keep going. Well, but I, so you added the demon deer and then, Hey, you got door.com to publish it as a novella, correct? Yeah. Yeah. And a yeah. sequel. Yeah. And the sequel, yeah, which is called uh, "The Barrel Will Send What It May." Ah, you're doing the thing where you're getting me to promote my work. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> which I actually need to do more of on this show. I've realized. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Um, so, I, sure. I, so do you do you find the same pressure? Because you do you want to talk a little bit about like pressures towards genre fiction because of all of this? Sure. And I mean, this is what it boils down to. You couldn't sell that story. You think you could not have sold that story. Perhaps you could have. But the reason you could not have sold that story is because you're a Margaret Killjoy, not somebody else. Mm-hmm. Right? It's not, it's not the issue of the story. And I'm the same. I've always, uh, like, perversely, these sort of uh, narratives about, uh, as my friend once told me, all your favorite novels are about some asshole who's a record 80,000 words, which is true. You know, this kind of uh, semi-underground post-beat mm-hmm. stuff. Alcoholics or whatnot, or 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 between the war British novels about uh, lost young men who uh, who fall into a ditch and something. Like that. <laughs> That's my. <clears throat> and I said, oh, I'm going to write one, but there was no way I, Nick Mamadas, could sell it because I, Nick Mamadas, you know, came from pretty much nothing. Like I, you know, my father was a longshoreman, my mother was a high school graduate. Who's you know when she. Uh, Got a job. It was at a bakery being the cashier, then at a supermarket being a cashier. Then she worked her way up because the union was into uh, having a, a semi-white color job at the uh, community college library, working a typewriter. She was one of the last typists that they actually needed. Mm-hmm. Now it brings computers. <clears throat> and so I have no special provenance. And uh, so I didn't. So that story wasn't mine to tell. We always talk about these days identity and whose stories are you allowed to tell? Well, the, the uh, amusing part of that is that you can't tell the story of of being a louche uh, bohemian <laughs> and that you're actually a louche bohemian who has a lot of connections. <laughs> and so my version of my a- asshole alcoholic wreck novel, I said, oh, it's got to be during a zombie apocalypse. Yeah. And so that was the last weekend, which is basically about uh, some assholes with 30,000 words plus zombies. <laughs> Because I could not have sold it otherwise, because I'm not, <clears throat> I'm not the person in the industry would identify as someone who is allowed to write that story, yeah, without zombies in it. Um, and this is all boils down, you know. Speaking of Marxism, here's the quick Marxist uh, understanding of literary versus genre fiction. I teach a class, and I do this every uh, every first class before the Industrial Revolution. There was no distinction made between uh, literary and genre, and certainly not the idea of the fantastical being somehow anti-literary. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but during the Industrial Revolution, all these things happen that everybody knows about: urbanization, mass production, technologization, um, imperialism, and colonialism, and uh, a, a focus on a certain kind of individualistic religious morality. So, what's the genre of fiction about urbanization and poverty and crime? Well, that's the mystery detective fiction. What is the uh, genre of fiction about machines taking over your life, which is the experience of the factory floor, the experience of blue collar science fiction? What is what are the genres of imperialism and colonialization? Well, the Western and the colonial adventure. And what is the uh, <clears throat> the genre of individual morality leading to some kind of golden age or some kind of reward? Well, that's fantasy. You know, religion is mm-hmm. fantasy. And of course, you also tell people, oh, you know, you're really worried about money, but money's not the most important thing in the world, Margaret Killjoy. The most important thing in the world is? Oh, I, I don't know. Love. love. Oh, right. Love. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Love. love. Oh. And what's the, what's, what is the genre about that? Romance. Romance. Yeah. So those are the genres of genre fiction. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, uh, something else emerged uh, from the uh, commitment with the, or the simultaneously with the Industrial Revolution, which was the idea of psychology. 
emerging from philosophy and theology. And psychology is about an individual subject who is <clears throat> not behaving entirely rationally, whether it's via childhood traumas or, or the subconscious or being misprogrammed as a kind of biological machine. So behaviorism, you know, Freudianism, the idea of stream of consciousness and stories about that focus on a middle class subject, a neurotic middle class subject, middle class being very neurotic because they are uh, stuck between the upper class, the ruling class, and the working class. They don't want to fall down, and they want to climb up, but they can't. Mm -hmm. So they're, they're very neuroticized. This is this is the theory. Anyway. I mean, any individual, there are many, many more neurotic working class people, many rational, totally fine middle class people, lots of nuts in the ruling class, as we all know. <clears throat> but this kind of fiction came out of this idea of, oh, there's a neuroticized subject out there. We're going to write stories uh, where people go about their daily life in a middle class milieu and then have some kind of Epiphany, mm -hmm. and those were published in That's more Hobbit, expensive, right? <laughs> no, but things like uh, James Joyce's Araby mm -hmm. or, or any any psychological realism, where at the end you realize, oh, I'm not happy, but it's okay, nobody's happy, and some and nothing may happen. Somebody might drop a teacup or open a letter and read it, or 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 uh, have an affair. Or somebody might have a miscarriage. That, that, that's the extent of the action of the external things. And that's all internal. And this is not saying it's bad, but that was stuff published in slick magazines that cost, say, 25 cents. And the genre stuff was published in pulp magazines that cost, say, 5 cents. Mm -hmm. And that's the distinction between literary fiction and genre fiction. It's historical and contingent. And even today, why is something literary fiction not genre fiction? Well, who's your agent? Yeah. yeah. And what's your name? Why are why are Jonathan Lethem's books in uh, in fiction? When, when when they were first published, they were in science fiction. They're the same books. Well, he had a good agent, had a stroke of luck. They wrote a very good book in Motherless Brooklyn, which is a crime novel that transcended the crime genre, became sort of a very mainstream <clears throat> literary novel, mining sort of Brooklyn hipsterism at the right time. And it was so interesting and so good. His science fiction novels, his early ones, became not science fiction novels. And the stories that he used to publish in Asimov Science Fiction now are published in the New Yorker. He didn't change. I mean, he had, you know, anyone matures and grows as a writer. But the old stuff didn't change. It just became literary because of uh, the penumbra of, of uh, how the industry works. So, the, so why can't you write a story about a squatted town? Well, because you're not well integrated enough into the milieu who, that makes the decisions. Ah, you will be the one who will put this money behind and put this effort behind. Yeah. In science fiction, it sounds you are, you know. And if I recall correctly from my observation of your career, and I'm not trying to put you on the spot here, this is not a, this is not a critique on any level, uh -huh. but I recall you were very into steampunk for a yeah. long time. Yeah. And, and my sense of that was that it was kind of mercenary. It was, <laughs> okay, so it started off idealistic. And then okay. <laughs> before steampunk culture really kind of, came into being i only ran across steampunk through anarchist stuff i only ran across steampunk as uh critiques of colonialism and like victoriana um yeah. and so i actually was really aesthetically interested in it for a long time and then what it was was i couldn't i i like refused to give it up because i was like so mad at what it had become uh, yeah. that it took me a really long time to give it up and there has been a certain amount of like you know um uh, for a little while, I was paying my rent selling uh, steamy punk erotic stories. Oh, sure, um, yeah, I remember that one. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, no, it it actually it wasn't quite as mercenary as that. Oh, I'm pleasantly surprised, and I'm I'm, I'm really thrilled that there was even that that current of uh, anti-colonialist, anti-imperialist critiques inside steampunk. My 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 knowledge of it, which is limited to what's on the shelves of Barnes and Noble or whatever, mm -hmm. was always that. Except for people like Moorcock, who's writing early on, or these little bits and pieces you'd see here, is pretty much the. Uh, what if what if Doctor Who had a, everybody dressed like Doctor Who and Doctor Who Land, basically? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's it's. So who who did you uh, come across first, uh, writing wise, writer wise, as far as uh, offer, that would offer these critiques of steampunk? Well, so I, so I first ran across steampunk. I was I was living in a squat in the South Bronx, and I like got this anarchist newspaper and it had a URL of some website. And I looked at the website and I like 
went back to the the base level of the URL, and it was the steampunk website made by these right. the Catastrophone Orchestra, these steampunk anarchists oh, and queens. Yeah, yeah. And so, and I read their like manifesto uh, that later we published as decolonizing the past so we can dream the future in the first steampunk magazine. And this is 2004. And I read this and I was like, wow, I've never heard of this steampunk thing, but it sounds great. It's all my interest. It's mad science. It's, you know, anti-colonialism. It's, uh, I, I don't know. It, it was all of this stuff that I was really excited about aesthetically and how the aesthetics can tie into a politics. And so I was like, I'm going to start a steampunk magazine because I just run this squatter magazine. In, no, I didn't run it. I helped design a squatter magazine in Amsterdam. Uh, I can't pronounce the word. It's like Levi or something. It means shout. And I had just done the graphic design for it. And I came back to the States and I was like, I'm going to run a magazine. I'm going to run a steampunk magazine. And that's how I got the name is that I was like the first one in on the ground. Yeah. And, and so I started this magazine. But then all of the other things that kind of started, I can't say that like I helped start the modern steampunk movement, but I was there at the beginning of the sort of modern yeah. resurgence of it. And so there was this little click of us. And I, I was definitely not the only one of these like steampunk anarchists or radicals and we were like yeah okay and then we kind of look around and we were like wait where the hell are we <laughs> um and so yeah we stuck around for a long time um and you know did, i did nine issues of the magazine and uh eventually i finally uh i couldn't handle, well, that is, that's, handle that's it anymore yeah but but it was because like the... of okay so this actually gets into this this idea that i i have that is maybe not totally accurate, but like one of the first consciously steampunk things I've ever read is Michael Moorcock's uh, The Steel Czar and the, the Warlord of the Air trilogy uh, from yeah. the late 70s. And it's, I mean, Moorcock's an anarchist and that those themes run throughout all, his whole book. And then like looking at Alan Moore's League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, which predates the kind of like current resurgence is from the late 90s. And Moore's an anarchist. And then you have like Gibson in the 80s and who was writing steampunk but it was like and gibson's not a i mean he's not right wing you know yeah and yeah. so all of it was infused with all this politics and so i actually i really developed this kind of cynical theory from talking to other people like i remember i interviewed lewis shiner once about how cyberpunk got stripped of all of its meaning and how cyberpunk started off as this like sort of anti-corporate critique and then ended up like people just take the aesthetic uh, ephemera yeah. and then ignore How can we the sell these cell phones? Yeah. 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 And so that's kind of what I think happened to steampunk. Uh, I think not quite as... Um, I mean, steampunk was also always kind of its own uh, yeah. own mocking, you know? It was never quite as like serious or something, but... Uh, so I, I've, one question I like to ask writers, and it's a, an annoying question, I'm I'm curious how your politics inform your writing, uh, not just not just how you sell your writing and things like that, but but what do you try to do with your stories that your politics informs? Oh, this answer will be even more annoying than that question. Mm -hmm. uh, honestly, not much. I write about politics because I'm interested in it, <clears throat> and it's you know just endlessly fascinating to me, and it's endlessly fascinating how people react inside sort of extreme political situations or with extreme political ideas. And um, anyone on a political fringe is going to find moderation not very interesting. Mm -hmm. right? there's, not, there's not a lot of drama. Oh, should it, should it be Sanders or Warren? <laughs> oh, will it, will it be Medicare for all or Medicare for the 98%? Or, or will, there be, will there be dental? And you know, obviously, as someone with bad teeth, I, I, I like dental care. <laughs> but uh, at the same time, it's not it's not what great dramatic narratives are made out of. When I was editing, uh, co-editing the magazine Clark's World many years ago, when it first started, we'd occasionally get stories in. I read all the stories that came in, <clears throat> or, the, or the, the majority of them anyway. And we'd occasionally get things like people just sort of struggling with these little issues about, well, what if it, what in the future when everybody gets very old and doesn't die, uh, what would that do to their property taxes? Who cares? <laughs> I mean, 4,000 words of this guy arguing, you know, with with a county assessor about, well, I'm 175 years old. I can't expect to be paying to paying this much property tax. This is not a story that's interesting to any human being other than somebody who is probably browsing about the personal property taxes uh, in their house somewhere. But they, these kind of stories, they come in there constantly like, oh, 
what if they change the census? So uh, instead of every 92 years, it's every 93 years they you know, release a certain information for, for a sociologist. Who cares? <laughs> <laughs> but you know, these things don't get published very much, but, but they certainly ch- uh, choke up the slush piles of, what if the DMV of the future is even more annoying? Who cares? <laughs> but, but, but what I care about are, are sort of these big things. How can we make a big sweep? How can we uh, make big changes? How can individuals do that? Or how can individuals fail to do that? How can individuals or groups or, or, or classes try to struggle toward freedom? And how do they bang up against it? You know, uh, can institutions of every, any sort, not just the state, and that's only not the state, be reformed? Or can they be overthrown? And how can they replace these just big questions that are interesting and that leads to personal dramas and satirical jabs at uh, our current situations? And so that is just interesting to me. I will also say that I came from writing science fiction kind of sideways, where the early things I read were things like uh, Douglas Adams, uh, Kurt Vonnegut, and you know, Moorcock, and uh, Omni Magazine, which was uh, slightly more elevated and slightly less interested in nuts and bolts and engineering, and, and my country more interested in uh, basically, I guess, quasi-pornographic uh, and uh, intriguing sentences. <clears throat> and so my early influences were all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So that this is what it feels like to me. And I enjoy hard science fiction now. I've, I edited a bunch of hard science fiction when I worked uh, for Viz Media. But for me, the, the major drama of writing sort of big and potentially funny questions. Okay. As opposed, are we going to meet an alien? Are we going to... What, what does a dragon eat? Who cares what a dragon eat? Uh, okay, so I guess um, since this is one of your, your favorite things, apparently, if you could talk about um, what you're working on now or things that just came out. Um... Oh, yeah, I hate this shit, man. <laughs> Absolutely hate it. Uh, I'm working on now a novella for PM Press, speaking of anarchist publishers. Cool. They're doing an outspoken author series that you're familiar with, mm-hmm. I, I presume. And it's run by Terry Bisson, who is a a leftist as well as a writer. I wouldn't say he calls himself an anarchist, but he was involved in the the above-ground phalange of the weathermen in the 60s, and uh, he's a nice guy and whatnot. And they've done a bunch of people. Basically, they've done friends of Terry Bisson, or, or the outspoken authors. Mm-hmm. And I'm not, I'm, I'm a friendly acquaintance of Terry Bisson, but I think uh, there was an impulse toward trying to get writers that aren't necessarily uh, of Terry's generation in this series. And uh, so I'm trying to write a novella that'll fill up the whole little book. It's like a little chapbook, a little pamphlet-sized uh, series with short stories and uh, nonfiction essays and an interview. And I just, I just wanted to have one big story in there. Mm-hmm. So I'm working on that now. And it's about sort of a far post-singularity feature. And it's about all my personal problems. If you want to find out what's wrong with me, this, this story might be a, a good place to start. <laughs> and I'm, I'm only about uh, 10 pages in. I got a passenger <laughs> trying to finish it up. What's coming out now is uh, from our uh, friends at Tor. Mm-hmm. It's a book called Sabbath, which uh, was not my idea. Uh, Tor is part of Macmillan, as you know, and Macmillan used to have a group inside of it, sort of a secret society called Macmillan Entertainment. And their idea was to come up with ideas for movies. Mm-hmm. But it's impossible to sell a movie on an idea, on a treatment. That nobody, nobody buys them, nobody even buys spec scripts. So their innovation was to find to come up with these ideas from movies, and uh, then find some writer who needs ten thousand bucks or fifteen thousand bucks and say, "Hey, do you want to write a book real quick?" And I I could use ten to fifteen thousand bucks. Yeah, that's a that's so a I decent said, rate for work for hire. Yeah, and it's even a little better than work for hire in that you you don't I don't own it, but I I get like a third of the royalties, and if it's a big and if it comes a movie, I get a third of the movie and all that kind of stuff. So it's not just a flat fee. <clears throat> and I get to do what I want to a certain extent inside writing the book. But it definitely was a, uh, as I mean, the dedication of the book Sabbath does it all is to my son Oliver, and especially for his 529 college savings account, <laughs> <clears throat> which they put the fuck out of me when I sent it in. Like I was like, <laughs> now, now, now not working at, uh, at the mill anymore. So you can't, you can't have that dedication. I said, no, even in work for hire, you get the dedication, the writer controls the dedication. It's like, and I, I've, been working in publishing for 10 years, 15 years. I've never had anybody try to edit that dedication. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he's like, well, I've never seen anything so cynical in my life. 
And I said, well, where can you read the book? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think we're pretty so much out of time. Like sure, no problem. Um, but thank you so much for, for coming onto the show. And um, My pleasure. Is there, you, you don't want anyone to follow you on social media, but where should people follow you if they want to? Uh, Twitter is the best. Twitter is nmamatas, N-M-A-M-A, like mama, T as in Thomas, A-S, all the vowels are A's. Facebook is pretty public these days, but it might go friends locked anytime, so don't get your hopes up, but Twitter is where it's at. Okay. All right. All right. Thanks so much. If you'd like to see your work on We Will Remember Freedom, submission guidelines can be found on our website, wewillrememberfreedom.com. This show would not be possible, quite literally, without the support of my Patreon backers. In particular, I'd like to thank Eleanor, Kirk, Hoss the Dog, Natalie, Sam, Nora, and Chris. Thank you all so much. All right. uh, Thanks for listening, and I will see you next month.